Hello and welcome to Martian Driving Podcast 165. My name's Terry Frost and I have been slack as fuck in getting the podcast out. Um, so in order to restart things and kind of get my mojo back, I have a guest today and the guest is Lee Battersby from all the way over in the top left-hand corner of the nation. How are you, Lee? I'm pretty good. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for having me along. My pleasure, mate. Now, we've wanted to do this for a while because we've discussed it once or twice mm. before, and uh, now we're actually getting to do it, which is groovy. Uh, so tell people where you are and what you do and who you are. For sure. Look, I am currently located in the uh, picturesque and extremely red-coloured uh, town of Caratha, way up in the Pilbara, the top left-hand corner of the country, as you said, uh, about 1,500, 1,600 kilometres north of Perth, the state capital. Mm-hmm. It's a mining town of about 17,000 people, uh, 200 kilometres from the nearest piece of civilization, if you can call Port Headland that. Uh, I'm up so, here to, to teach um, and, uh, in theory, continue my writing career. You'll do it. You're starting it again, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, tell, tell us about your books. So, uh, to date, three novels mm-hmm. uh, written. I, I work uh, mainly in the sort of science fiction, fantasy, horror field. Two books for adults full of uh, swearing and sex and uh, all things wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, one uh, book for kids full of uh, all things wrong without the swearing and the sex. Yeah, that's a weird thing. That, um, young adult stuff is, is something I have a bit of a problem with because people like it more than they like grown-up science fiction in some ways, particularly adults. And I find that kind of odd because I, I do like the nuance and the, and the kind of, not depth, but the different viewpoint you get from having an adult novel rather than a young adult novel. Yeah, look, I think... Look, I, I sympathise with you, and I, I guess I empathise with you. I, I like complexity, um, and I like being challenged and forced to navigate my own way through a, a plot or a narrative. By the same token, I can understand, particularly with speculative fiction, why uh, why a young and, and also and kids fiction is popular amongst adults because I think the concepts can be so big and the concepts can be so um, complex and at, at times morally questionable that a simplified narrative probably helps people grasp those, uh, particularly if they're new to the genre. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see your point on that one. But for me, I, I like the grown-up stuff. I like people who are going to fuck up and then say they fucked up. Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I mean, you and I, I think, are of a similar age. Uh, YA as a concept didn't exist when uh, when I was growing up. So you you just grabbed what was on the shelf in the library, and if it was for adults, so be it. It was up to the librarian to tell you you couldn't uh, um, read it if you had a uh, a suitably um, indifferent librarian, you could get your hands on all sorts of things. I'd say so. supportive rather than indifferent, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, I mean, I mean first thing is where I, I came from, they were indifferent. I got my first science fiction novel at a fate at yeah. a school for intellectually disabled people. <laughs> uh, because my father's girlfriend had a son who had an intellectual disability and sure. they had a school fate there, so I picked up The Silver Eggheads by Fritz Lieber. Oh, and yeah. yeah, that's going in the deep end because there's complex stuff mm. about AI and and publishing and all sorts of weird shit like that. So I just went in the deep end of it and and haven't looked back since. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I, the the first books that I remember or really recall um, 
the Lord of the Rings trilogy in one volume, you know, which was in my uh, primary school library. I don't really quite think they knew what they had there. And uh, similarly, yeah, um, the White Gold Wielder trilogy, Stephen Donaldson's, you yeah. know, first trilogy. You're 11 or 12 years old picking up this, you know, beautiful sort of painted cover and it's all nice sort of soft focus fantasy. And then I think within about the first dozen pages, you know, the leprous hero has traveled and raped yeah. somebody. And, you know, you say, I don't think I'll let mum read this. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. When I first joined fandom, uh, the Donaldson ones were, were crazily popular and people mm. were actually handing them around because not everybody could afford them. You know, we no, were no. working class broke people for the most part in Sydney fandom. There were a couple of posh people. But for the most part, it was it was very much working class, and if you couldn't afford it, and students, so if you mm. couldn't afford it, you passed it around to your friends, and eventually you got it back tattered to pieces, of course, because they'd all read through these enormously thick Donaldson books. Yeah, um, Tolkien never got into it. I actually tried to read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings again about two months ago. Just can't get into the style of it. Yeah, I think these days it's a fairly acquired taste. I mean, for me, reading it. At you know, ten years old, it was like nothing they were giving us. Yep. So it was the it was you know the novelty in the true sense of the word. It was something completely new, mm. um, and I devoured it and stuck with it. Possibly in a way I wouldn't do if I was coming to it now, where uh, sort of the, the, you know the fantasy genre is saturated with the media culture. Yeah, um, I mean, um, yeah. thanks to George R. R. Martin, good old George, who. Um, yeah. It was really weird because I did get that thing. I mentioned it on social media where Amazon.com.au recommended I get a Game of Thrones in paperback. <laughs> and I put on social media that, yeah, I did that 25 years ago. And then I walked over to George and got it signed at the convention. Yeah. Uh, because back, he, back when you back when you could just do that, just walk up to him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, was, he was sitting in the corner reading a book, having mm. to have a chat. Lovely guy. Him and Paris are both lovely people, and I met them three or four times now. And um, so we just go over there, get George to sign it, have a bit of a chat, <laughs> shout him a beer if he's in the bar, mm. and, and just go with it. Uh, but yeah, people's lives change. It's a bit like Neil Gaiman. Um, yeah. The one year I won a Dipmaro Award, which was in Thylacon in Hobart. There was a um, bar down in the bottom of Hadley's Hotel, which is this crazy old hotel in Hobart, which um, Amundsen, after he got back from the Antarctic, stayed there. Okay. That's how old it is. Mm. And so you just go down to the bar, and there's Neil Gaiman there and Kim Stanley Robinson, who is probably the big climate science fiction guy at the, at the moment. Yeah. Just sitting in the bar there. And um, so we just sat up all night, had a chat with them, got crazily drunk and, and had a really good time. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think, and again, it's it's uh, probably a sign of the changing times when, you know, you and I first started our various journeys and said, and, you know, people of our generation, that idea that authors and uh, the creators of, of what might even be wildly popular uh, media were just simply available and were ordinary people and were utterly approachable and you could just sit at the bar and have a, a, a yarn and a drink with them seemed quite normal um yeah, now well, i think it was the fandom that i was kind of one mm. of first first convention i'd go to terry carr who was probably one of the great science fiction editors amongst the, and authors of the 20th century he was the guy who brought so many people into the flock yeah it was crazy he was the guy who taught me how to smoke dope 
he's dead now, so I can say that. But, you know, a little rim party and his naive little me mm. learning how to kind of hold the smoke <laughs> from Terry Carr. Uh, and you yeah. know, it was it was just what happened in those days. And, of course, it's different now. You've got minders, you've got people, you've got social media. So people, if somebody did that, then somebody gabs on social media. Yeah. They have to deal with the aftermath of that. But in those days, it was very much a kind of cohesive thing. There wasn't that wall of privilege and a wall of kind of expectation no. between us and the the big name authors. Well, I think there's a, I think there's a monetization element that's come into it as well. You know, the, the crossover between uh, literature as a self-contained form of media and the wider media, I guess, has broken down a little bit. You know, it's the, the sort of supernova effect where you can go to supernova and pay for your, uh, you know, pay your $200 so you can get two minutes with a, a, a bald one yeah. or, um, you know, and, and sort of the bigger authors, the Martins, the, the Pratchett's, the Gaiman's have crossed over to that, I yeah. guess, a little bit. So those Pratchett hasn't are, done a lot lately. He's kind of he's well, no, he's, his he's career gone, a bit, hasn't he? He's gone, he's gone quiet. He's resting yeah. on his laurels. But, Absolutely. you know, the, but that, um, sorry, Terry. Um, no, not, not you, the other, sorry, sorry, Terry Pratchett. Yeah, okay. But, um, but yeah, look, I think, you know, they, they've got caught up into that particular end of it because they've crossed over. Um, and, and so that gets seen as a, as a more normal way to behave by more and more of authors who perhaps haven't quite reached that level I, yet. I deeply hate the supernova yeah. kind of phenomenon where basically what you are is a customer. Rather than part of a community and, a, and part of a, a kind of family in a, uh, in a very, very broad sense, where, which is the way old school conventions, which are still around but not as frequent, happen. Yeah, you, you're yeah. part of a community, you, you talk to people, you go down to the bar and chat with whoever, and then later on you find out they sure. just signed a $500,000 contract. Uh, there's, a, there's all that kind of thing there, and it, that to me is what fandom's about. It's not about having your photo taken with an actor who's pretending to be somebody he isn't. Look, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got actors that I'm a huge fan of. I would, I would probably do the dribbling fanboy thing if I, if I got stuck in with them. But I've also been fortunate enough to, I guess, be behind the scenes with enough of them and enough authors mm. and so forth that it, it, it takes a fair deal for me to get excited about them. I, I, I'm lucky enough to see most of them as people first, so I do tend to get a little bit affronted if those barriers come up but yeah. by the same token you know if every time i walk through a room i have to stop 75 times for every single person who wants to make the same comment and touch me and grab at my clothing yeah you know maybe, maybe the odd selfie, barrier. Yeah. yeah so maybe the odd barrier just so i can get to the damn toilet you know? yeah i mean there's a difference between fans and fanboys i think in that yeah sense. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, keep up with this microphone. I'm going to have to be careful because it's going to make ding noises. Um, yeah, so there, there is that kind of change there. But for me, fandom's a community. It's not kind of a, a business model in that sense. Yeah, look, I agree. I think, um, you know, the one of the, the, the wonderful parts about being um, a fan of anything is, is meeting like minds, you know, and I think, you know, a guy like uh, Mark Hamill, I guess, is a great example, Leonardo DiCaprio, these guys who have achieved huge things, but then huge things with the genre and are complete fanboys in their own right. You know, they maintain that contact. They maintain that sense of community, even if they can't do it 
Yeah, I mean, you, that isolation is a horrible thing. You know, being crazily famous but being in a, in a bubble. Mm. I mean, I'm sure it suits certain yeah. types of personalities, yeah. but for people who at some stage of their lives didn't have that privilege, I think that mm. a lot of them really embrace opportunities for genuine contact with people. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the stories about Mark uh, Hamill and Carrie Fisher are, are legion. You know, the, the stories about Robin Williams, more so after he died, you know, yeah. people sort of came out and memorialised him and every story was about some small human contact they had with him. Um, you know, the, 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 everyone knows that, you know, sort of DiCaprio is a comic book fiend that he still haunts the same comic book stores he, always, he grew up in. Yeah. Um you know, they're, they're human moments and they're people just being themselves, just being fans, and that, I think that helps humanise them a great deal. Yeah, Tarantino does the same thing. He's been on Pure Cinema Podcast, mm. um, which is some friends of mine, well, one, of friend, one kind of podcasting friend of mine does, and he gets on there and talks about the New Beverly and the things they're doing at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles, and if I was ever to go back to that benighted and diseased place, that's probably one of the places that I'd go to. But, um, yeah, he, he has a genuine connection and just riffs with them about old movies mm. and um, kind of goes in with that. I mean, for me, the celebrity thing, the only two big movie celebrities I've met, three. One is I got a book signed by Charlton Heston once. Cool. And, yeah, well, his rug was crazy, obvious, but he was very polite and, and gentlemanly and shook the hand that parted the Red Sea. <laughs> and and that kind of thing. The other ones were, and you got to love this, Kevin Spacey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he did a movie in 98 called Albino Alligator where he was the director. Yes, yes, yeah. And he did a presser in the basement of Melbourne Town Hall with eight people attending. <laughs> and there's a couple of things I, I remember from there. One is I got to say hi and thank you, I like your work which in retrospect was probably the wrong thing to say. Um, two things I noticed. First one is he's got an enormous head for a human being, mm -hmm. like physically enormous head for the size of him. Yeah. And the second thing is that there was that creepy vibe. You know how you get a certain feeling about certain people? Yeah, look, I mean, he's an, he, the idea that he's an unnerving sort of human being anyway, I mean, it yeah. comes across in his film performances, hmm. and, and obviously his um, his personal behaviour doesn't, detract from the fact that he's, he's an astonishing actor. Yeah, but, it's just that but he's, that, he's persona that, non grata for the universe for that. Yeah, yeah um, but those performances, when you sort of see them as a, uh, a, a you know, a homogenous unit, um, there is an unnerving element to almost all of them. So it, it's easy to it's easy to believe that that's a, a core part of his personality. Yeah, and the other person, which who, which is a much better experience, is Peter Fonda. Who did okay. Yuli's Gold around the same time? You got nominated for an Oscar for playing an older um, guy who was a beekeeper and has to go and and search for his daughter. I think it is. I don't remember the details. But he came out and did a Q and A and had a brief chat with him. Lovely guy, old school courteous hippie guy. Yeah. yeah. And I was quite sad when Peter Fonda died because I'd, I'd obviously met him. I've got I've still got an autographed Yuli's Gold um, thing up on the wall here. And he was really great. He was, and the thing he did, he did a Q and A session, and the loveliest thing he did was he talked about everybody else he worked with. He didn't talk about his own stuff, and didn't talk about himself. He talked about um, Victor Nunez, who directed it, and the other actors. He really had a crazy generosity of spirit when he was doing that, which I haven't seen since. 
no. Oh. Well, I think I think the, the the two that I've had both occurred in the same week. Um, okay. And that uh, back in uh, the early 2000s, I, I spent a week in LA. Uh, that won a writing competition, so I was I, part of the prize was over there to that wasn't that one was it tend to it's it's yeah it's 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 the one um uh, from the cult that shall not be named but um yeah went over for a week stayed in a a luxury hotel spent a week doing workshops with uh you know some bunch of fabulous writers guys like tim powers uh, was there had dinner with fred pole which will be a highlight because he again one of those just truly beautiful gentlemen um but i met sean astin okay um at the the sort of big ceremony that they had at the end, and once he heard my accent, uh, all he wanted to do was talk the Olympics. <laughs> oh, you know, oh, you're Australian. Did you go to the Olympics? Like, well, no, mate. I live five thousand kilometres away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Olympics were fabulous, and and so I ended up we ended up getting in trouble together, which was nice because he um, he kept getting ushered towards the stage, and uh, you know, no, no, wait, wait, I've got one more thing to say. <laughs> And uh, the other one was Billy Bob Thornton. Okay, and that, cool. um, yeah, I, I was I he wearing the rug, or was he not wearing the rug at the time? He, he was no, he was wearing a beanie okay. at the time, so I couldn't tell. Mm. And and from my position on the floor, it was kind of hard to tell as well because I'd gone to a cafe for lunch, and just without thinking, you know, being in Australia, being an Australian, I'd I'd, um, I'd gone to the exit door, mm. which unfortunately, being America. Everything's flipped around. Was the entrance door, yeah. and as I tried to get out, he came in and walloped me in the face with the door. Oh, put me on my, Yeah, put me on my backside. Yeah. Bought a house uh, when you sued him, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's the tiniest man I'd ever seen. He's a tiny man, um, yeah. but you know, oh, terribly great again, terribly gracious, and oh my goodness, and oh, you all right, and got me up, you know, mm. dusted me off. It was only when I got outside that I realised who it was, and also that. <laughs> No one else in the cafe had even looked up. Yeah. That the, the I you know that um, I mean I was slap bang in the heart of Hollywood, and um, this was just clearly an everyday thing. Nobody looked up at, at the likes of a Billy Bob Thornton or, or anybody walking around. Um, you, you want me to tell you my Hollywood so story? You finished? Yeah. yeah. Go for it. Okay. So I, I went, was in Hollywood for one day, but when I went to America in '98 with the Fan Fund, mm-hmm. and I decided I was going to book a hotel near the airport in the middle of Inglewood, not knowing that it was an incredibly rough area. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were unfortunate amounts of homeless people there and all that kind of thing. So I decided to take a cab to Hollywood. So I'd take a cab to Hollywood, spend about three or four hours wandering around, looking at the things. I went to Tower Records to do all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. And so I book a taxi because in those I, there were no mobile phones. I didn't have a mobile phone. So I went into a phone booth and booked a taxi. And tell them I'm on the corner I'm on, which is like Sunset and, and Euclid or something like that. Yep. And so I wait there. And I chuck, I, I'm chuck. waiting there for 10 minutes, and a cab chucks a Yui across four lanes of traffic <laughs> and pulls up alongside me, and a Pomeranian's head sticks out of the window. Okay. Tiny little dog. And, it, and I look down, and there's a hippie guy sitting next to me going, oh, you must be Terry, get in. So we go get in, and I get this long ride back to Inglewood from Hollywood yeah. with this crazy hippie cab driver who tells me things like Los Angeles has half as much oxygen as the rest of the world, which is why people are crazy. <laughs> and, and he's giving me all these crazy stories. They're great stories, and he's a lovely guy, and we have a great time. 
And I get there, and I'm like three bucks short on the fare. Yeah. Because I didn't have the cash at the time. And they didn't take credit cards at the time. So he says, listen, you let me vent, so yeah, we'll, we'll consider it even. <laughs> so Lovely. get out of the taxi. Yeah. Him and the dog wave at me and just go away. It's a wonderful yeah. moment where you just kind of connect with someone. Yeah, I, look, I, I found that myself. They said, I mean, admittedly, I was only there for a week. I was in, yeah, Hollywood, L.A., you know, fairly protected because of the organisation that we were, were under. Um, but I found the same thing, you know, that, that persons were fantastic. Yeah. Individually, every individual I met was fantastic. But once they started uh, sort of, the, yeah, clustering together and that overarching culture, that, that framework under which they existed was just a little bit to the left of what I, yeah, or, you know, a little bit one step to the side of what I was used to, and, and yeah. some of the, the disconnects were a bit disturbing. Well, travelling uh, around America, the thing I realised is it's not one country. It's a whole bunch uh, of different countries mm. that happen to be clustered together and, and have some kind of commonalities to them. Um, we should mention, too, that in Minneapolis, Uncle Hugo's was burnt down during the riots in the last couple of weeks. Yes, which was. is a big science fiction bookstore there, mm. which I got to go to in, in Minnesota when I was there for two weeks. And that's another one that was weird because I, I walk in there, right? And they've got every science fiction novel you ever want. And then they've got um, Uncle Edgar's, which is the, attached to it, which is the mystery bookstore. Mm-hmm. And it's got every book I ever wanted. And so I walk up to the counter with a couple of books and say, oh, well, I'll have these, please. And the guy behind the counter says, you must be Terry. Because they knew an Australian science fiction fan was in Minneapolis at the time. I was <laughs> <laughs> oh, so the guy with the Australian accent coming. Word, word had got out. <laughs> word had got out. And it was lovely. They gave me a, like a discount card and all sorts of other shit. But um, when I heard that it had burned down, I was really sad. And I know that a number of my friends in Minneapolis are just devastated mm. that one of their kind of cultural landmarks and, and place that means a lot to them as well. And I was only there once, and it still meant a bit to me. Mm. Um, was destroyed, they believe, by white supremacists trying to cause trouble. Yeah, it wasn't by the people who are doing the Black Lives Matter thing. It was from the other side of things. Yeah, well, I think we're seeing that a lot, aren't we? That um, there's there's an enormous uh, sense of agitation, enormous sort of sense that there's a, there are numerous fifth columns. Mm. You know, uh, white anting everything, and uh, honestly, it's uh, it must be an absolute nightmare over there. I mean, uh, as, as I keep seeing in, in in all of my feeds and all my media, that uh, you know, um, uh, black Americans, African Americans are are very much saying, you know, well, welcome to the nightmare we've been living all along. But yeah. just if that is the life and the existence that uh, African Americans have been carrying for you know for all of these decades. Uh, yeah, Jesus Christ! You know yeah, what, a, what, a, what an absolute uh, holocaust! What an absolute nightmare! You know they must live. Yeah. I mean, I'm also in the YouTuber community a bit because of the YouTube channel, and a number of the YouTubers I like and respect have put their viewpoints, particularly of people of colour, and there are a number of them that I that I subscribe to, mm. and they were telling their stories on their channels, including um, I got to have a shout out to Big Rob Theory. Because he did, a, he's like a small YouTuber. He may have like a, a couple of hundred subscribers, and he's doing movie stuff about science fiction movies and, and other things that interest him. And he lives in Florida, mm-hmm. and he did a beautifully 
passionate um, explanation of, of his experience of that kind of stuff. And it was just eloquent and on the on point mm. and beautifully done. And um, I, I kind of left him a comment and stuff like that. And Rob and I have been kind of talking about each other's videos for a little bit now. And just hearing the stories, and, and that's one of the things I wanted to do was just listen, not say this is what should happen, and yeah, you know, no. this is this is my viewpoint of it. I was listening and learning, and that was something I, I learnt in 1988. I went to the big protest march in Sydney when the bicentennial was happening on the harbour. Yeah, and um, that there were a couple of things with the white people supporting the indigenous community we're going to be walking behind them on the march and we're all kind of lined up around Belmore Park waiting to get to get behind them and support them and people grabbed us by the arm and just dragged us with them all the way yeah. through they said no you're not walking behind us you're walking with us and we went up there and then there were a number of talks like a crazy sunburn because it was like January in Sydney <laughs> And that was where I learned, which is against contrary to my natural style, is just to listen to people who are talking about this kind of stuff mm. and learn from it. Yeah, look, I, I have, you know, it's, I have the experience here, and you know, working, I'm, I'm yeah. working as a school teacher in a, in a school with uh, a, a really substantial yeah. Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal population, lots of uh, Indomani and, and uh, people here. Um, you know, we we've got a, a situation where Rio Tinto, the the yep. mining company that, to all intents and purposes, owns the town, mm. um, have just destroyed blatantly and without any real justification. You know, forty thousand, sixty thousand year old artworks. It it barely makes a ripple. Um, the kids who I, I'm, I'm working with, their heritage is being destroyed in front of their eyes. And they're looking to me, a you know, yeah. a fat white middle-aged <laughs> former Englishman, yeah. um, for for guidance. You know, I'm, I'm not the only one, but you know, if they're in my class, then then I'm standing up the front, allegedly educating these guys. And um, you know, I'm not the I'm not the guy who should be talking. I'm the guy who should be learning for those things. You know, yeah, so but I think it's a mark it's a of respect that they situation. actually ask you that. Yeah, look, I mean, it's my you know, it's my duty, really, uh, to try and find out as much as I can to, to present it as well as I can. But, you know, we've we've got this topsy-turvy situation here where, like I said, you know, even at the even as most basic, you take out my birth heritage, which is, mm. you know, English and Scottish. And, I, you know, I've come up from Perth. You know, I've come up from 1,500, 1,600 kilometres away. I've, I've grown up. I grew up in Noongar country. You know, I'm, I, I can't even speak for the the local culture um and yeah you know I, sh I should be the one listening i should be the one learning yeah, yeah i mean where you lived before you moved up there is is full of ex-poms and ex-south africans well yeah look i mean there was a time when uh, rocking where i lived was uh, yeah it was a uh, uh, an englishman's uh, retirement home thankfully yeah. it's much more cosmopolitan place now but uh, yeah when i was a kid it was the whitest place in the universe um you know, but the fact that a, a company that can come up here and, and you know destroy such the, the, this incredible you know uh, culture and and it doesn't raise an eyebrow is um, uh, absolutely horrific. 
Well, it's raised an eyebrow everywhere else in Australia, and there's yeah. a lot of stuff going on about it. Um, one of the things that's kind of hopeful, too, is Insiders, which is the big Sunday morning political show for people who don't know um, mm. here in Australia that the ABC does. Last week, they copped a lot of shit for talking about the Black Lives Matter things in Australia without an Indigenous journalist. Yeah. And they fixed it this week. They, they got an Indigenous journalist on, and they respectfully listened. And, and mm. yeah, that was a beautiful thing to, to see the fact that they're willing to error check and to fix what's gone wrong. And that's one thing I've learned with doing the stuff I do with the ABC, talking about movies every week. The incredible respect that the people who work there have for Indigenous cultures, because the people I talk to are in Darwin, yeah. up in Larrakia mm. Territory. And um, they they are just the best people to have doing what they're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, I've always, I've always sort of talked about this with friends and, and, and family and, and talked about, you know, if you're going to go on a holiday, an overseas holiday, mm. why, why would you go and insulate yourself? The whole point of going to a place that is somewhere else is to absorb that culture and learn from that culture and, and get a taste of it. And that goes doubly so if you're going to live in a place. Yeah. You know, um, why go to, you know, I said in my case, the Pilbara, or, you know, said why go up to the, the, the Big North or something if you're not actually going to be a part of it? You know, um, and certainly why would you go there and, and make anything worse? So to go, yeah, to go into another person's culture and then not spend the time to to listen and learn and educate yourself seems to me at, at best counterintuitive and at worst obviously completely harmful yeah and the, and the lovely thing is that, and the reward you get for that is the things you learn yeah just just the the way it expands the world from you know your viewpoint of the world mm. anywhere you go to where you kind of immerse yourself in, in things really does that it kind of expands what you understand of the human race and of the planet it, it really is rewards you more if you open up than you mm. expected to. Yeah, and look, I am, you know, I am the purest progeny of two perfect little Britainers, you know, little Englanders. Uh, my my run up has been long, <laughs> so uh, you know, I've had uh, plenty of time to note things while I've been getting up to speed. Because yeah, you know, look, well, you love stop my, my parents you start dying. Yeah, yeah, and look, my parents were loving, warm, wonderful charming caring bigots yeah you know so i i yeah you know and, and i'm no i'm not a perfect creature by any means but as you say you um if you don't stop checking yourself checking your privilege making sure that you uh, you're you're in tune you um you can do a lot of damage without even knowing yeah, and so many people who are, look and are roughly the same age as us do that. Yeah. I mean, the, the villains of the narrative are people who look somewhat like us. And I accept that. I accept that because mm. they are total pricks a lot of the time. Oh, look, you know, put put me in a suit and shave me appropriately and definitely just on looks alone I could get into the Liberal front bench. Ooh, um, what a horrible yeah, idea. A terrible idea, but, you know, a flabby white middle-aged guy with glasses, it, it, unfortunately it is a fit. You know, so, yeah, you know, uh, the idea that then someone who, who looks like me should turn around and judge anybody on their look or their skin colour or their... Um, you know, their background yeah. is where the harm comes from, I suppose. Yeah, we last time we were listening, you 
set me off at a tangent here, and, and the, <laughs> this is going to go at a tangent, so just roll with it. That's right. Um, last time we were, absolutely, last time we were in Sydney, we decided to go up to the Shire, which is the electorate where Scott Morrison, our benighted Prime Minister, mm-hmm. lives and is the member of. And it is the whitest, blandest, brutalist architecture from the 1980s place you could ever imagine. We went down to Cornell where Captain Cook, yeah, Cap- Captain Cook turned up, first landing in Australia. Yeah. And they got the Captain Cook statue there, which I don't expect to last the decade. But um, And all along the waterfront in Cornell, all the waterfront houses have got Australian flags flying on them. They've got that kind of, you know, look at us, yeah. we're, we're white Australian um, people and we're only going to fly our, fla- fly our flag. Um, it's it's a creepy place in so many different ways. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those places, you you know, you have to be seen to be seen, don't you? You, um, you know, it's, it's not enough just to uh, carry the privilege you've got to wave it. Like, so, yeah, my flag's got to be bigger than your flag. Yeah. So we'll change the subject now that we've actually gone deep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're a fan of the Bill and Ted movies? Um, funnily enough, yeah, watch them uh, rec- watch them again recently. Uh, we've got a, a 15-year-old son who uh, <laughs> desperately wants to be an actor, desperately wants to work in the industry, and uh, so you know, we take the opportunity whenever we can to uh, to, to shove things in front, face. shoving things in front of his face. And look, absolutely, watching them again, the first one holds up really well. The first one is still yeah. genuinely funny, genuinely nutty. Mm. The second one creaks. But um, has, when they has get its station on the the big arsed aliens. Yeah, the uh, you know sort of the killer robots coming back from them. But uh, William Sanderson, is, I think, as, yeah. as death is still sort of sublime. He really yeah. makes. The have movie. you seen the trailer for the new one? I have. I've seen two trailers for the new yeah. one. I kind of uh, like it. I'm 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 a board for that. I mean, they got William um, Sadler back. Sadler, thank you. Yeah, Sadler. playing yeah. playing death. Um, they got. Bill and Ted back. I'm, I'm on board because I don't expect it to be deep. I don't expect it to no. be wonderful, but I expect to sit down and have a good time. Yeah, look, I want to. I've, I've seen the, um, the, the the two previous. I'll be honest with you, they look tired. Um, yeah. But I, well, I, I desperately... No, I, and I desperately want it to be fun. I, I desperately want it to be a, uh, a callback, to particularly that first movie that just, you know, Silly, nutty, um, yeah, and and honestly, vapid because the the vapidity, the, the the dumbness of it is is an enormous part of the charm. So, I don't want it to be deep and meaningful. I I, I kind of want it to live up to to its roots. And a lovely thing too, I think, is that um, if they play it right and if they kind of nuance it right, that dumbness can be kind of contrasted with certain dumbnesses that are happening in that part of the world at the moment. Well, yeah, I think. I think if they do something like that, it might be an interesting thing. Oh, I think so. And I mean, you, you know, there are certain recent presidents, uh, not the, 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 you know, insane. The pale, the pale orange one, yeah. Yeah, I was not the insane monster that they uh, they have now, but, you know, go back a couple. Um, and, you know, if, if, if there's a more Bill and Ted president than W, um, you know, I don't know what is he. He could make a guess. Well, maybe LBJ. Yeah, I was, yeah, you know, W could make a guest appearance and not be remotely out of place. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm hopeful. I really am hopeful. I'm, I'm hoping that um, it, it just is that little release valve that can come from just, yeah, 
sitting back and enjoying some some world class dumbness. <laughs> and we need that at the moment. We need a dumbness that's not weaponized. Yes, I think yeah. I think that's something that we're calling for is to is to have that wonderful dumbness about it. Uh, the other movie I'm I'm looking well, there are a few. I'm looking forward to Tenet, the um, Christopher Nolan one. I don't know much mm. about it. Nobody does. No, but I um, you know look, I've worked up a fair fandom for for Christopher Nolan. I'm unashamed in that, and I think uh, even when he fails, uh, he fails interestingly, and he fails with ambition. Cough, darker, you know, cough, yeah. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a, a movie like Interstellar, which mm. uh, for reasons I, I don't know seems to sort of garner a lot of hate, I I saw it I, I saw it fail, but by God, it was it was a hell of a crack, you know. And so even if it's a movie that doesn't necessarily hang together, he's not going to make something, you know, the Michael Bay end of the spectrum. So no. I, I, he's earned a lot of goodwill from me, at least, you know, faith that I'll go in and see something interesting. I hated Dunkirk. The reason I hated Dunkirk was the sound design with that loud boom mm. in the background, yeah, to manipulate yeah. your your emotional state. I saw it in the cinema, and just that manipulation by having that kind of low, almost subsonic boom about it, saying, "Ah, oh, here's the bit where you should get really agitated." So I'm going to make mm. you feel agitated by manipulating the sound. I thought that was a bit. I mean, I I've said this often. I love a movie that seduces me, but I don't want a cold hand shoved down the front of my pants. Yeah, it, it did seem like that was his. Um, it was almost his blockbuster attempt, mm. you know. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that well, he's ticked that off. He's done his big tentpole blockbuster. He's played by everybody's rules, and if he goes back to doing his own uh, rules, yeah. we'll get we'll get another Inception or in, uh, Interstellar or a movie that can be big. And and you know big concept and widescreen and have all the big sounds, but on yeah. his terms rather than uh, a studio terms. Uh, well, the nice thing is he's had a little longer in the post production because of the Rona, mm. and so he may well be able to kind of nuance that a bit. Hopefully, because a lot of movies are. I mean, the James Bond. You want to see that too. I want to see Daniel Craig doing his last bit of James Bond, and that of course has been put off till November now. In another yeah. universe, I've already seen it. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm hoping they come up with something genuinely interesting. The last couple of Bond films have been uh, big disappointments for me. But um, yeah. I mean, Casino Royale, I think, set a, a, an enormously high bar. But having having set it, and, and including uh, Craig's performance in that movie, it'd be nice if they could reach for that again. Oh, yeah, I think um, Skyfall did okay with the Spectre less so. But I think mm. the two high points are Casino Royale and Skyfall. Yeah, I think so. Um, Skyfall has its um, has its faults, but it was at least an attempt to tell something a little different from the usual. It said, yeah, yeah, Quantum of Solace and type A to ABC adventure. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I'm on board for it because I'm kind mm. of that age where you're welded to um, James Bond films in the same way that a younger generation is welded to Star Wars movies. Yes, it's a, it's a Bond movie. I'll be there for for good or ill, you know. I did see the latest Star Wars movie, much to my chagrin. Yeah, I, I, did I mention I have a 15-year-old boy in the house? So, yeah. yeah. And, um, <laughs> what, I mean, it's, you've got to be really fucking stupid to set up a universe where every white person in the universe is related to every other white person in the universe. Well, it's, 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 it's a paucity of storytelling as well. Mm. Every, every 
time they you see a big Star Wars you know movie like that, it just hits the same beats. It just hits the same narrative notes. They would tell the same story. Yeah, and I you know it has the potential to be an incredibly rich universe. Uh, you know whether whether you love the Mandalorian or hated it, and, and obviously it really wore its influences way above its sleeve. At least it was trying to tell a different story. There's enormous potential when you create a, uh, a un- pardon the pun, a universe that yep. big to tell so many different stories. If we could just get away from this big yeah. sort of, you know, north and south Civil War epic that they seem to want to keep remaking every time. Yeah, and um, I mean, for me, The Mandalorian didn't work because it was telling a new story that had already been told by Kurosawa and Sergio Leone. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was uh, so many influences rather than going in a new direction which things like the wire did there are so many places where people have gone off at a tangent from a previously established franchise and tried to tell something new and the mandalorian is is kind of like it's telling stories that better people have already told yeah absolutely i mean i said it, it you know it wore its influences you know probably far too openly but Extent, at least it was different. At least it was different to the rest of the Star Wars universe, yeah. which, you know, good points. There was there were some moments in there that I thought were genuinely gorgeous. There's a, a one episode where a single walker, two-legged walker, threatens a village, and some of the uh, some of the framing and some of the light in it was was stunning. Um, if See they how they do it, that now um, for mm-hmm. this Mandalorian. Basically, they render it in real time on a background, a giant, basically a giant computer screen. Okay. So no, all of the backgrounds and things, uh, look into that a little bit because they're using new technologies. I think they're using the Unreal Engine, that the, un, the games that use the Unreal Engine are doing. Okay. And basically, it's rendered in real time in the background on an enormous curved screen. It, it's a really a, a breakthrough wow. technology. So it's yeah, I mean, and, and that's said. I mean, when you see some of the the the, the in-game movies and the, and the cutscenes in movies, they're absolutely beautiful. So it makes sense, you know, that technology is yeah. available and and the product is fantastic. But and the PS5 yeah. rendering has just come out too. They did a a thing showing the new Unreal Engine that they're using mm. for the PS5 games, and the detail on that is not just photorealistic. But it's kind of a, a heightened reality in a lot of mm. ways. Almost uncanny valley stuff. No, no, it's not necessarily no? the people; it's the backgrounds. Okay. And and the depths of the backgrounds and things like they'll shed, a, they'll cast a, a light in a corner, and three hundred cockroaches all run in different directions. Wow. Um, the, oh. the, I mean, the, they're going to be using that for film as well mm. because it's such a useful toolkit that games technology is going to be more more as the way the Mandalorian is, mm. influencing the way that stories are told in film. And that was something else I wanted to bring up too. I'm looking at the things that are on Netflix and Prime and all those kind of things. And there's so many science fiction movies that are just purely action films these days. And it's a bit depressing. Well, they're easy to churn out, I think. And, you know, with um, the business model that the streaming services are, are pursuing you know tight 90 minute um you know sim- uh, potentially simplistic story or certainly simpler story that's fit for a smaller screen 
um, you know, obviously I think is going to be the way that they they pursue because it's easy to uh, to fit to their business model. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been, yeah, I mean, there's a real up and down in the quality, really, you know, variable quality in some of the results. And I think some of the things that we've seen that have been trumpeted, and I think in particularly of um, uh, Annihilation and mm. the other one that strikes me is The Irishman. I know that's yeah. not a science fiction movie, but, you know, they were trumpeted as major, major um, moments for Netflix. I'm not convinced that they were worth the hype. You know, they, uh, they, they were an ill fit when you actually watched them. Yeah. But you know, it's a it's a different way of accessing material, and if that um, if that catches on, it gives people a, a different option. It's like Extraction, the Chris Hemsworth movie. I saw that, um, and that's kind of a bit. Yeah, we know these beats. We know we've seen this before. Mm. It had Denzel Washington in it, or it had Liam Neeson in it, some kind of thing like that. There's one of the interesting things from a purely action point of view is. There are a lot of action directors now who are ex-stuntmen. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so they'll get all of that stuff right, all of the things of the fights are all hyper-realistic, the um, gunplay is accurate, all this other stuff. But that – and I respect that. I mean, the John Wick movies show that you can really make an interesting world mm. using that kind of expertise. But the problem is that not everybody is – getting the human part of that right. Um, John, I think John Wick does. They set it right up from the start with the wife giving them the dog and all yeah. that kind of thing. So they set up the human dimension before they start getting into the action stuff. And yeah, I mean, they carry the good, franchise because of that. Yeah, there's, look, there's a good 20, 25 minutes in that first movie before anything you know, really kicks off. Yeah. I think I think the thing too is that, you know, um, when we go back to that streaming model, the Netflix the model, you know, traditional movies, as is, is we know, for whatever dollar you spend on the movie itself, you're spending another dollar fifty, two dollars on promotion, and and you know that's not happening with Netflix. So I think what's happening is that movies that that money's often getting streamed back into hiring bigger name actors. Yeah. You know, so you're getting actors who ten, fifteen years ago would not have appeared in a television movie for hmm. anything suddenly being attracted to being in those properties because the money's there to pay them, but the properties themselves are, are not necessarily fitting. You know, you, you, you're, you've got A-list actors being attracted because the money's there, but you've still got those those B-rate TV movie plots and directors and, and so forth. And I think we're seeing a bit of a, a disconnect between who you're watching and what you're watching. Yeah, and yeah. the thing is from, for writers as well, it may not pay to do a, a film script because the big money is in episodic television, yeah. episodic yeah. streaming services. I mean, there are a couple of things I've been watching that really are doing interesting things in that realm. The first one is Penny Dreadful City of Angels, which is a new one set in 1938 yet. in Los Angeles. I haven't caught up with that yet. Yeah. It's really interesting because they're doing a lot of things. Uh, they're putting in a lot of Mexican mythology in there, which mixes old um, belief systems with Catholicism in an interesting way. Uh, they're putting in the prelude to the um, Pachuco Zutsut riots that happened during World War Two. They're doing the yep. prelude to that. They're putting in some really interesting actors. Natalie Dorman's in it. Nathan Lane playing a hard-boiled Jewish cop is really great in that. 
and the writing is on point. A lot of people have cr- criticised the series and, and said they didn't like it. But for me, the writing is great. There's a scene where Nathan Lane's character has got to convince a um, Mexican-American young man Mm. that the best option he's got to survive is to say that he killed people he didn't kill because he's going to jail anyway and he's either going to be and as they say in in the in the series he's going to be fuck bloody if he goes in like that but if he goes in as somebody that killed four rich white people he goes in with a rap he goes in as a hero Mm. and that's his chance to survive and yeah it helps out the police force because they just want something close and the police chief is played by brent spiner oh okay doing some nice character acting away Mm. from playing androids and um there's a, a great monologue as he convinces this kid that his chance of survival and and you know to help out nathan lane's character is to confessed to a murder he didn't four murders he didn't commit and it's beautifully written it's beautifully played there are some nice beats you know there are, mm. there are bits during the monologue where there's slow development of the idea and then it lands with a really hard line and then there's a slow build up again to try to convince him and it lands with a hard line it hits all the, the pacing and, and, the, and the rhythm of it Mm. is beautifully done uh, special effects are on point but everywhere special effects are on point now yeah and f- it's worth checking out when you get the opportunity to um the series is still going there's a few more episodes left and there are some good character actors in there there's some good younger actors as well mm. and it, it pays to pay very close attention to it when you're watching it well i think yeah uh, and, you know and i think that's the sort of thing that the uh, streaming television you know, it's going to discover more and more that it's capable of doing in, in a way that movies did some time ago and they've seemed to have moved away from it slightly that, mm. you know, for one $20 million actor, you can get yourself an entire cast of $4 million actors who are just as good. Um, you know, that you, um, you can either throw all of your, you know, all of your resources into capturing sort of one big moment or one big tent pole, or you can spread it across, you know, there's several different vectors and, and, and still get more or less the same quality. Yeah. You know, um, uh, yeah, the other two things I've been watching that I've been enjoying a lot, I've been watching the latest season. I watched the last season of Legends of Tomorrow, mm-hmm. which is silly fun. Basically, they take the superhero trope and running it silly. Yeah, I've, I've struggled, to be quite honest, with the yeah, that, that oh, I guess the entire universe, that Arrowverse is... Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes a point in every show. I think I lasted the longest with The Flash. I think I got through three seasons of The Flash, but yeah. eventually, I don't know, the, the silliness just overtakes any semblance of the light that I take in it. Yeah, but I think The Legends of Tomorrow, particularly after the second season, they've done five, mm. leans into the silliness and goes, yep, we're going to do Totally Absurd shit. They've got John Constantine as a regular character, played by Matt Ryan, who does it right because he's got the right kind of accent. Yeah. And he knows what the character is. They keep the kind of sexual polymorphism of the character, okay. which is kind of nice. So there's yeah. some interesting things there. So I enjoy that. The other one is something that's on Netflix, which I recommend people watch. It's called Mystic Pop-Up Bar. I think it is. Hang on, let me just double-check that. Mystic Pop-Up Bar. Yep. It's a Korean TV series that's on Netflix. It's a Netflix series. 
basically um, it's it's new and episodes are coming out twice a week. Basically, there's a um, outdoor drinking bar, which is a pop-up bar, run by a woman called um, Walju, who is actually a 500-year-old spirit, who's got to help 10,000 people in the next six. She's got to finish helping out 10,000 people through their lives okay. in the next month or two. Otherwise, she's going to hell. Okay. And she meets a young guy called um, Hung Kung Bei, who anybody he touches has to tell the truth about their life. And he's just got this supernatural power about him. So they kind of use him to help her get through it. And you go into the backstory of what happened to her 500 years ago, where she burnt, where she basically destroyed a, a mystic tree. But there's a deeper story. In it. And each episode's got really deep character stuff they've got humor mm. in there but they've also got they do one story about a couple that's unable to conceive and they go through ivf and, and that's unsuccessful they've got another one where a, um, a businessman with dementia thinks his wife is still alive but and her ghost is helping him okay they go so, really deep and interestingly and, and silly and fun and they do the young romance thing that south korea does so well yeah. but they're also doing a bit of depth there and the characters are interesting it's got a lot of fun Okay, so Mystic Pop-Up Bar, because I, I, that's a genuinely new one on me. I, I've heard nothing about that anywhere, so I'll give it a check, I think. Yeah, and I and think also, I, the, the, the female lead character, female hmm. lead actor is incredibly cute. <laughs> well, that never hurts. Yeah. But but I think, again, that's, and then that's one thing that, um, you know, these streaming services have a real uh, opportunity and real power to do, is to bring, um, you know, for want of a better phrase, I guess, non-European you know, non-American non voices to the full. Non-anglophone voices. Yeah, you know, that, 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 I mean, my own watching history has been almost exclusively British and American as I've grown up, and Australian, of course. Um, but, yeah, you know, they can bring, it, it costs as much for me to sit down and watch an African movie or a Korean television series as it does an American one, you know, and, and Netflix, HBO, Stan, they've got the purchasing power to be able to bring volume you know so it, it's not a matter of watching one indian movie or you know two indian movies i can i can select a, a, a you know a, a stream of them and really immerse yourself into a different way storytelling way which i think is fantastic couldn't have dreamt of that when i was a kid and the lovely thing about this series too is the food's fantastic they keep serving different food in this pop-up bar mm-hmm and you've got all these beautiful Korean dishes with, like, spiced meats and noodles and egg. They even just make an egg and corn sandwich for a guy. And you think, oh, shit, I want one of those. Right <laughs> so it's got food porn, it's got deep characters, it's got humour and kind of young love and an inept young guy who, because every time person he touches tells the truth, he, he hasn't had too much luck with the sex. <laughs> Um, and, and this um, angry but also compassionate 500-year-old female ghost. Plus food recipes. Uh, every, Plus you know, food, yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing else left. It's, it's got everything. a lovely character in this one. There's oh. a kind of middle-aged, slightly chubby South Korean guy with a perm. <laughs> who is basically there to help out people get to where they need to be. So he's not like a bad character. No, no. He's um he's very much uh they've got a arc over the series of an evil spirit which which is swallowing other evil spirits to become more powerful and there's going to be a payoff at the end of the series but it's a lot of fun and it sucks you right in. 
It sounds great. Honestly, it sounds great. The way you describe it, it just sounds like nothing but fun. And, and okay, I kind of joke about something for everyone, but it really does sound like it's got so you many... You have to do it when you don't have a house full of kids because you've got to pay attention to the subtitles. Mm. Well, I might, uh, yeah, save that for when I've got a house full of teenage <laughs> lunatics with us at the moment today. So, yeah. And maybe one for later this evening. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But it sounds fabulous. It sounds, yeah. it sounds a so lot So what have you been fun. watching? Um, to be honest, not a great deal. Um, teaching has a tendency, particularly in the first couple of years, to eat your life. So uh, okay. any uh, any spare time is is spent marking the last dance, which or the last dance, which is uh, about Michael Jordan's last season playing for the Chicago Bulls back in, in the 1990s. Which is a yeah time when I was um, yeah. Deeply into playing basketball, deeply into watching it, and so it's been an interesting uh, journey into nostalgia, but also into uh, watching a, 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 a player self-eulogising himself a little bit. I think you know okay. that. Uh, um, is he rewriting history? Do you think? To a certain extent, yes, he is. Um, and look, I mean, I think we all do that. You know, I mean, there's a there's a desire to make yourself, if not look better, then look at, uh, at least slightly less of a jerk than you probably were at the time. <laughs> but it's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, it, it, I said it was a time when uh, time when I was absolutely. Uh, I guess we talked fa- about fandom earlier. If if I if there's a basketball fandom, I guess I was part of it then. You know, reading all the magazines, watching all the programs, uh, arguing all the arguments. <laughs> you know, so. Um, yeah, it's been a fascinating. It's a fascinating character study. Um, it helps to it helps to know the subject matter, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it it it's interesting in who they talk to, but in, in very much also who they leave out, <laughs> who doesn't get a voice. Always uh, the case. Um, yeah, yeah, that series is really strange from me too because um, they were talking about it on the radio, the ABC I was doing it for, and we didn't want to talk about that because I know fuck all about sport. Mm. So we reviewed Space Jam mm-hmm. with Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny and all the rest of them. One of the, one of the great, truly awful movies of our time. <laughs> it hasn't aged well. It's uh, We did a few of those uh. over the time, too. We decided we were going to go into an 80s nostalgia thing at one stage, um, Rebecca McLaren and I. Mm. And so we did Revenge of the Nerds and then found out they were all sex predators. Yeah, it's... It's funny. I, I watched Revenge of the Nerds at the cinema when it came out. I was I was fourteen or so. Went with all my friends, and you know the big yeah. thing we we were all you know feeling terribly grown up because we got to catch the bus into Perth into the city, which we mm-hmm. you know most of yeah look most of us had never been allowed to do that by ourselves at the time, and you know got to go into a, a movie that was probably rated above us, um, and so it was this big adventure. And then yes, watching it as an adult. Um, the problematic behaviour runs deep in almost every character, and you sort of watch it and thinking, "Well, Jesus, no wonder we were all fucked up in the 80s." Uh, if, yeah. if that was present, that's presented as normal and normalised, and in some way liberating. It's liberating for the nerds to behave in this way, and you think uh, they're sex pests. Yes. <laughs> the interesting thing was we actually uh-huh. kind of fixed it next time around because we did Real Genius with Val Kilmer which mm-hmm. had the advantage of having a female director. 
Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing as it's nerds getting revenge against um, mm. the military industrial complex and all sorts of things like that. But because it's got a female director, it's got that different viewpoint. And the two are really interesting to compare and contrast. Yeah, we um, I said because we've got I said uh, Connor, our, our teenage son, in the in the house, and we're um, you know fully behind his desires to be an actor. So we, we're yeah. watching a lot of stuff, quite very quite varied stuff. So for every you know Godfather we watch, we're watching a Police Academy as well. Fair enough. And um, some of the movies that Lynn, my, my wife and I, who's the same age, grew up with. We're watching again for the first time in 25, 30 years, and I, I guess it speaks well to the the advancements that uh, the culture has made. But blimey, some of the uh, the the things that are normalised, and Police Academy is one. When you if you go back and watch that first movie, some of the behaviours that are just normalised within that movie are repellent. Absolutely. Um, yeah. By the way, uh, if you want to steer Connor in that direction. All the Powell and Pressburger movies are on SBS On Demand at the moment. They're going to be there till oh, really? a month or two. And if you want to stream towards good acting and things like that, stuff like The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp are on, mm. are on there. And, okay. So, yeah, it might be a, uh, just an, another little nod you can give him on that. Um, what's yeah. your internet like up there? Actually, it's reasonably good. Um, yeah, where where I um, lived before here, uh, we said Baldiva, sub- suburb of Rockingham, where... Um, we weren't on the internet. Oh, well, sorry, in the internet. We weren't NBN. on the um, NBN, and um, it was it was patchy as all hell. Here, even though we're not necessarily in the NBN, the signal is is really strong. So it's a small town, but it's um, yeah, important in an, uh, to the in an industrial way. So everybody's got uh, really good connections here. Oh, good, yeah. Yeah. SBS on demand. Did they film parts of Mystery Road series two up your way? Somewhere up here, yeah. I'm not sure if it was directly in town. I mean, of course, the the, the big one from here was the the, the two Red Dog movies. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's tied up with the local, you know, the folklore. Red Dog himself was a, a is a local figure. Um, so yeah, you know, the 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 vistas up here are stunning. Mm. All all of the all of the sunsets and sunrises are pretty much 360 degrees. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, you know, and the the landscape here is. It's hard to describe. It is genuinely beautiful in the way that a desert environment can be beautiful. So oh, yeah. it, it's incredibly, yeah, it is an incredibly photogenic part of the world. Um, yeah. I'm kind of lucky could... here where I'm in the western part of Melbourne because, yeah, there's a bit of suburb between me and the bush. Mm. But we still get that because it's a fairly flat area. You still get the good sunsets Yeah, where I am. And the lovely thing is, too, that I just bought a drone which hasn't been delivered yet. Okay. Once you so, get it. So once I get it, I'm going to be going out and about and um, basically getting some really nice footage, mm. which I'm going to be sharing, of course, on the um, YouTube channel. But, um, yeah, and the lovely thing is if I get to travel somewhere like where you are or anywhere pretty much, I can take the drone. It's, it's 249 grams, the drone itself, so it doesn't weigh anything at all. No. Um, and I'll be able to get sort of lovely footage and, and buttery smooth not 4K, but 2.7K footage mm. of um, of where I am. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, and I want to take it to places that would be fun. I want to take it out to a couple of deserts and and do that and uh, look forward to doing that. Uh, we actually went on a road trip the other day too. We decided we were going to 
break the law oh, and go to South Australia. Sorry? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, you dropped out there for a moment. Yeah, like, so we, we decided we were going to drive to South Australia, and it's illegal to go to South Australia at the moment with the lockdowns. Okay. So it's about 320, 330 kilometres. So Sally and I got up early, drove out there, and we get to the sign saying, welcome to South Australia, and there's no one there. <laughs> they were possibly closer to Mount Gambia. Yeah. But technically, without breaching any kind of quarantine or passing coronavirus onto anybody, which we don't have anyway, we actually got to break the law in a tiny way, and it felt so <laughs> fucking good. A little moment of rebellion. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, West Australia, where you are, is locked down at the moment too. Nobody can go anywhere else. Yeah, look, hard, no, hard border to uh, to the other states, but for um, quite some time we were also uh, we had hard regional borders too. Mm. So our family is all down in Perth. Our adult kids are down in Perth. Yeah. Um, our son and daughter-in-law are getting married in July, and there was a few moments where we thought we'd be yeah webexing or skyping the wedding because uh, from where we are down into Perth was about is two regions away, and uh, we simply couldn't get there. Absolutely. Um, by the same token, you know what it it worked. You know, we, we Western Australia has uh, perhaps suffered less than than some of the other states um, and some of from, the other we, countries too. Yeah. Well, definitely some of the other countries. But yeah, look, the the state government here took quick action, took decisive action, mm. and um, yeah, to the most part, it's paid dividends. Here in in Karratha, you know, we really didn't. See us at all. I think we had two cases. They were caught early. They were hospitalised and um, isolated, and life went on. Yeah. So I mean, we're kind of lucky where I am in the Shire of Wyndham, on the western part of Melbourne, because mm-hmm. the only two people, the few people who got it, were nurses working in other hospitals. Yeah. So we we didn't get much of it at all. But the state government did a smart thing. They said we want to get people who aren't showing symptoms to have the test done. Yeah. And I had a little bit of a rhinovirus, a little bit of a sniffle. So I went down there and had them tickle my brain with a feather <laughs> and, and get that done. And it's actually helped. Victoria's done much better than it should have. And in all of Australia, I mean, what is it, about 115 people died in the whole country mm. so far of the Rona. And um, we've been quite lucky with that. But I've got friends in the States who are now talking about when they, they will get it. Yeah. Because yeah. the quarantine is just not being done. There are too many idiots who don't believe it's a real thing. And they've gone up to 130,000 people dead and they still aren't doing what they need to do. Yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, friends in Britain and some of the stories that are coming out of there are just horrific. Mm. Um, Stephen Saville, the, the very good uh, author, lives in Sweden. Um, and some of the stories coming off his feed, because Sweden's... Uh, undertook, undertook almost no um, uh, amendments to anything. Yeah, yeah and um, yeah, some of the stories coming out of, of his feed, things that he's uh, experienced and seen. The other Scandi know, countries are doing great with it, apparently. Mm. Yeah, but, but so, uh, Sweden, for its own reasons, went a different path, and yeah, um, yeah it's. I mean, I've only that, got a couple of friends yeah. who have had it so far. Fortunately, Cheryl Morgan, my friend in Wales, had it, mm-hmm. and she came through it almost asymptomatic which is great because cheryl's one day younger than me yeah and um, we keep having birthday jokes about it (laughs) but uh and a friend of mine who um was on a respirator in america he had the the rona as well i think 
Yeah, I'm fairly sure he did it. They weren't saying that explicitly, but he was on a respirator. Yeah. Um, so. With an illness, so I assume it is. And if I'm wrong, Chris, and if you listen to this, mate, I do apologise. But I hope you're getting better because you've been a good supporter of all of my endeavours and I can't afford to lose people. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where we've, because of being on an island and, and because mm. the state government's forced the federal government to take action on this, um, people are doing, I mean, there are still people who are unemployed and, and having a lot of problems there, but from the contagion point of view, we're actually doing quite okay. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, when you're talking about something that's so widespread and so globally um, affective, mm. then obviously, you know, we can only speak in generalisations. But look, in in generalisations, yeah, our federal government has been fortunate in that our state governments, for the large part, have been decisive because our our, our federal government has not been. Um, you know that that. We have made use of our our distances, our isolation, you know, our, our large travel times to try and lock things down into into bubbles. And um, fingers crossed, you know, because I don't think we're anywhere close to being past it yet. It's just that other global events have overtaken us. Um, we'll, we'll continue to be uh, relatively okay compared to some of the, uh, the, the the other poor bastards who are, are suffering in other countries. Absolutely. But I think the thing they really should do is release all the movies in Australia and New Zealand, even mm. though they can't release them in America. Yeah. Because oh, I want to yeah. see the James Bond movie. I want to see all the Marvel <laughs> movies they've got lined up. I want that shit. And, you know, we're doing okay. My cinemas are reopening in the middle of the month. Um, so I can I can go to the cinema. So give me, throw me a Marvel movie, throw me a James Bond movie, throw me Tenet and Bill and Ted, and I'll be happy. Yeah, look, I'll um, you know I'll, I'll put our hands up for it. I said here in Karatha, a it'll be nice to not see a movie six months after everybody else, and b you know our library, our theatre, our cinema, and uh, you know our, our sort of community hall are all essentially the same building every anyway. And, <laughs> You know, the library's open, so hell with it. Let's uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll test it. We'll test out all the movies for the rest of you. I'm so pissed off because Darwin's deck chair cinema, which I haven't been able to get to because I've always gone up there in wet season, mm-hmm. has reopened again. They're doing some social distancing, but the deck chair cinema is actually reopening, and I'm pissed off because I can't, <laughs> can't get to it. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> the Northern Territory, for very good reasons, there are a lot of. Indigenous communities where people are immune compromised and, and the health issues there, and the distance between them and serious medical help. Mm. I mean, they've had to lock it down. I mean, I suppose it's the same way up at Karatha. But um, yeah, they, I'd still want to get up there and watch the movie. I mean, I'm willing to take a test. Mm. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, I joke about it, but I, uh, I actually need surgery. Um, and I. I got to get some surgery done on my ear and it's been postponed twice already because we can't get the flights down to perth it's got to be done in perth um and every time they book it down in perth there there is literally simply no flights available so you know they're the sort of things you don't necessarily think have have an effect but i mean in my case that's relatively minor to compared to other people but yeah um look send us a few movies we'll be you know <laughs> we'll be we'll be fine and you know if 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 we all if we all get the rona because you know 400 of us are in a cinema it'll be the same 400 of us anyway you know well, that's it. Just, I mean, and also we promise not to do spoilers to america we can yeah. giggle and say oh wait till you see something you can't oh see. 
Who'd have, you know, who'd have thought that would have happened? Yeah. Oh, what, what? Oh, I better not oh, tell dear. you. Who would have yeah. thought that James Bond had discovered he was actually a woman? Yeah. Yeah. Who'd have thought James Bond was a black lesbian woman? What a twist. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I've got to talk about that. All the people saying we should have a black James Bond, we should have a female James Bond. No, we should have black people telling a story and have a story about black people and have women as main characters in female narratives, not just taking an established male character and making it another um, ethnicity with a whole different backstory and another gender. I think that tell the stories of people and, and don't try to just go, okay, well, mm. this one's popular, so we're going to co-opt it and pretend that this person is actually a black person. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, yes, I, I, I agree with you to a certain extent. And I, I've had a number of arguments with uh, a mutual good friend, Grant Watson, over oh, I the, love Grant. Uh, yeah, over the character Miles Morales, the uh, <laughs> yeah. the alternative universe Spider-Man. Mm. You know, and that um, he's a fantastic character, and I can't stand him because yeah, I don't. I don't uh, know, it's a fantastic black character in his own right. You yeah. know, um, but Grant's point, and, and it's a true point, is that you know with Without that cultural penetration that you get from a from a, a Spider-Man or a James Bond, would those stories be told as successfully or as, as to wide as wide an audience? So it's probably a a, a double-edged sword. A black yeah. James Bond might prove to be incredibly successful, yeah. but it is telling someone else's story. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the weird thing is, that it's a bit like saying, "Well, let's have a black." Um, Tony Stark. No, we've got Black mm. Panther. Yeah, um, we've got a black narrative made by a black director, black writers, mm. black actors, and it reinvigorated that whole franchise. Yeah, it really did because it was quite moribund. I mean, uh, I may be the only person I know who, who whose heart sinks at the idea of another Thor movie, but you know, without that lead-in, without that, I said that that's you know, for the want of a better phrase, market penetration. Is is uh, a black Bond analog um, going to going to have the same success? And I don't know. I don't have an answer. Um, I'd love I'd love to think it would. I'd certainly be there to watch it myself. But yeah, I mean, yeah. there there are any number of different possibilities there. And uh, mm. I mean, it's like the detective thing. They did Honey West in the sixties as a TV series. It wasn't mm-hmm. crazy successful, but they did a Private Eye with a female lead character who was quite strong yeah. um, as that. And it was way before its time. And, yeah, tell tell me stories from a different cultural viewpoint, definitely. Mm. And, and you know, there's nothing to say you can't have a black secret agent. Um, in fact, there have been a number of them. Uh, mm. But James Bond has been so, so established as an intellectual property. I don't think that... It's doing a service to the narratives of other cultures to just co-opt that and then just say, okay, well, now his mother was a black Swiss mm. woman and his father was a black Scottish no, Scottish yeah, woman. Look, yeah, yeah. yeah, look, I mean, I, I think James Bond, particularly as a character and as a, a mythos, if you like, is so inextric- inextricably um, sunk in a white, middle-class, aspirational English point of view to um, to change it to uh, sufficiently to to, I guess tell a a, a truth about a a person of colour 
Yeah, or any, and also, you've got an opportunity. You're now changing them. You're changing. You're changing the, um, the 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 character so far anyway, just in order to remain true to the story that you're, you you should tell. Mm. That why not make it a new character and and do it right from the beginning? I think without. there's also that possibility now with with things like Netflix, willing to throw money in the direction of something new, which mm. uh, movie studios aren't, because they're a, they're a kind of almost the the streaming services are almost like. Um, wind turbines compared to coal-powered fire stations that Hollywood is, Mm. Hollywood. And there are some things in Hollywood that are going interestingly, but for the most part, there's a new industry out there producing the same product, but doing it from a different point of view. And I think that having those narratives, um, having stories told by other people, we're going to see um, an African-based secret agent at some stage. Yeah, we're going yeah. to see all of those things, and those stories are going to be good. Mm. Um, if the Wakaliwood people in Uganda can make a whole action film on two hundred dollars, <laughs> the the peop- the imagination and the guts is there to do it, and mm. it just requires a few resources, a bit of faith, and a platform that will bring it to a wide audience. Yeah, and look, I, I think you know, for all the will in the world change you know change james bond's skin color if you like but in in the real world you know um the difference between a white secret agent james bond style and a a a black secret agent james bond style is that the white secret agent james bond style isn't going to be afraid of his life the moment he steps out of his suit and is just driving home at the end of his day's work absolutely you know and and so that story by folding by folding a person of color into that James Bond character, that James Bond myth, mythos, you're, you're you're missing all of that. You're missing all of that um, uh, reality. Yeah, you know, that cultural that you, reality. That you could, yeah. yeah, that you could be telling. Um, but look, you know, we talk about the Hollywood machine. Yeah, look, a big ship takes a very long time to turn. Whereas uh, the streaming services, I think, smaller, more flexible, you know, operating operating to a completely different zeitgeist, and I think they uh, really do represent the chance, the best chance of telling genuinely interesting stories, uh, new stories. Yeah, and I like the fact that you know, I've got a 55-inch TV, and I love having that bigger screen in front of me. It's not the same experience as a cinema, and I want to get back to cinemas because mm. from my childhood, when things were incredibly rough, and I've talked about that in various places before. Cinemas have been a sanctuary for me. Yeah. They've been an escape from a shit you know, life I was having yeah. at the time. And so they're a place in which I feel very comfortable, whether I'm yeah. by myself or whether there's 100 people in the audience or whether there's one. Mm-hmm. It, it's a kind of sanctuary for me, and I want to get back to that. But I'm willing to absorb as much culture and movies and, and other things. Sitting in front of my 55-inch with a cat sitting next to me clawing my leg... <laughs> <laughs> and being interrupted every 20 minutes by Sally asking me what's for dinner. Um, and, and I'm willing to do that because I, the lovely thing for me is finding the things and watching them and then letting people know what they are. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I had a similar experience growing up that the the experience of a, a cinema started when you closed your front door. Yeah. You know, the, the, there was an immersion in the in the experience, and when it represented an escape, it represented an escape from everything. 
as much as as much as watching something on Netflix can be an escape, it's still an escape in the same location. Um, and you know, yeah, if if like you and me, the location wasn't uh, good to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it was interesting too because we were talking. Sally and I were talking, going, "Yeah, what I miss about cinemas: choc top ice creams. <laughs> uh, the ice creams dipped in chocolate and yep. beautiful yeah. chocolate." And then we walk down to the supermarket, a supermarket we don't usually go to because they're popping up all over the place out here at the urban fringe. Mm-hmm. And they had choc top ice creams going like four for ten dollars. <laughs> because I, obviously, what's happened is they haven't been able to sell them in cinemas, so the companies that made them dumped them into the supermarket, into the and supermarket. we ended up having watching stuff on TV with choc top ice creams, and it felt <laughs> good. It was like, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 bringing the experience home as much as you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, if I had wanted to make it the full experience, I would have sat through half an hour of commercials before the movie started. But. Yeah, I mean, you know, and then you hired a kid to talk all the way through it, and yeah, you know. But no, I um, look, I, I think you know the one thing about going to the cinema, it's the same as going to you know a, a, a theme park or or going to live sport if that's your thing you know the the experience encompasses more than just the final product there is that that aspect of gathering together for a shared purpose being part of a a tribe i guess no matter how um temporary or or or, uh, you know um existing only in your mind that might be yeah you've got that shared purpose that common uh, escape from whatever realities you're all coming from doing that together in your house you're you're uh, almost reinforcing your reality yeah which is why people so, get um big projectors and project them in the backyard mm-hmm. because it is somewhere slightly different to watch a movie it's yeah it's kind of making do with with that stuff and yeah i mean there is that commonality remember i still don't understand this people applauding movies after the movie's finished if they enjoyed it because the people mm-hmm. who made the film can't hear. Yeah, yeah. I um, again, I, the, the only thing I can think of is is that the, the, that's reinforcing that shared experience. You're letting the people around you know how much you enjoyed it, um, and and the other people join in because they they want to share their enjoyment too. Because otherwise, yeah, it is nonsensical. Yeah, it, it, a, you, you, applaud weird... in, you, employ, you, you applaud in you employ you applaud in theatre. You know, or, or a live performance because that's an instantaneous feedback. Um, yes, the the Americans who made this movie two and a half years ago, thirty thousand kilometres away, cannot hear you. Um, so why? And and it must be for that immediacy. It must be for the people around. Yeah, it's it's a unusual thing, but you know, people are people, and again, yeah. and I think people will go back to the cinema when they can because it's one of those it's going to be one of those hallmarks of normalcy and mm. you know like going back to the pub and uh for us driving to south australia and having our photo taken at the sign and being able to um go back our favorite cafe reopened this week so we've actually got a booking every sun every monday morning at eight o'clock we'll go down to our favorite cafe because it's reopened now we supported it by getting takeaway while all the shit was going on. <laughs> but we're getting, it's a, we've got these little mm. kind of milestones of normalcy. Yeah, yeah. There's these, these ideas that, you know, we can go back to the way things were. I, I, I don't know that we can, and I don't no. even know that we want to, but I can see that the, um, 
you know, the desire to do so is strong. The desire to, to, to look ourselves in the mirror and say, well, we survived, we got through. I, I think the things we, we go, we're looking forward to doing aren't the things that are the stuff that needs to change. They're the things that mm. um, bind together a community. I was sitting down and having a chat with Eden who, and Amy who run the cafe and own the cafe and just shooting the shit. They um, actually subscribed to my pod uh, to my youtube channel because ah. they like movies um, oh, and, and we're kind of building relationships there and i think that there are a whole bunch of things that have changed um casualized work for one the way we organize childcare in australia all of those other mm. things have to change and the change is going to be forced if the government doesn't give into it and all of those things are, are going to move because we realized what's important we've had a reality check which unfortunately has killed a number of people. But I think that there's an opportunity to improve our civilization through this kind of adversity in the same way that uh, World War II in England brought people together and crossed a whole bunch of um, kind of cultural barriers and and barriers of privilege and and things like that. It's an opportunity to reset the compass. Mm. Yeah, and look, I think you know we've we've seen that with the uh, the Black Lives Matters mm. movement, obviously this year as well. But you know the Me Too movement over the last uh, few years as that's gained, you know, momentum and, and critical mass. Yes, you do hope that it makes changes for the better, and, and you know, it, it, at the very least, it serves to maybe point out some of the um, the, the white ants. You know, some of the people who have who have taken advantage of the silence to really do some terrible things and if 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 the minimum that happens is that those people are are highlighted and weeded out that is at least a step forward oh um, absolutely may, yeah. may not be as many as steps forward as you'd like but one step is better than none i guess and it's easy for me to say as again as a as a you know middle-aged white male uh yeah. those things are easy for me to say i don't live them uh, you know but yeah, I, I think you know if we come out of the end uh, at the end of everything that we're experiencing uh, these years, and we've made a better place for more people. Yeah, it would be nice to, to think that will happen. And the weird thing too is that um, one of the things I've noticed, being the kind of person I am and the age I am, is that people have stopped doing the OK Boomer thing because they've realised it's not baby boomers that are a problem; it's rich people. Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of going, okay, well, yeah, we understand it's not um, people of a certain age who were born before 1964 that are the issue with society. It's rich, privileged people. Mm. And I think that that, that's an important differentiation to make because, you know, know, we're not rich at all. We're kind of almost the opposite of rich now. But yeah. um, there are a couple of things, like I can afford a drone because my bank overcharged me on bank fees for a couple of years and they've now given me a couple of grand. Yeah, you've had a, you've had a bonus. It's yeah. not something that you can take, uh, you take for granted. And so when you get it, you, you're trying to make them the best of it that you can. Well, I think if we, 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 if we can get rid of the, um, the anti-Karen movement, that'd be nice too for exactly the same reason. You yeah, know. It's one of those things um, where if we get any kind of windfall money, that's our frivolous money. The, the mm. we, we buy things. And so there are a few things I can buy. I'm going to be getting a nice podcasting deck where I can put sound effects in the middle of a Skype call, for instance. Yeah. 
and that kind of stuff, which I'm going to use to kind of increase the what I do. But um, yeah, it's interesting times. I, I really hope. I mean, I'm a basically a utopian. I think that that's every politician's job description is to drag people and to encourage people towards utopia. Well, you hope so. Otherwise, what, otherwise, what are they for? <laughs> that's your job is utopia. And yeah. a lot of politicians, particularly in Australia, are saying, "Oh, that's utopian thinking." Yes, it is, but that's your fucking yeah. job. Yeah, so it should be utopian bloody thinking. That's yeah. what we're supposed to be moving towards. Absolutely. You know. Anyway, yeah. um, are you okay to wrap this up soon? Because I'm, yeah, I'm look, hungry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course. Do you want to come yeah, back on? Sorry, I would love to. I've, I've absolutely had a, a, a ball chat to you. It's been it's been lovely. What we'll do next time is we'll yeah. watch a couple, of, watch a movie or two, and talk about the movies we watch. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Okay, I'm really really back It's been great, mate. Yeah, it's been a real joy to actually uh, talk voice to voice, sir. Absolutely, mate. Yeah. So anyway, love to the family, and um, I hope you're all doing well and stay safe and well up there. Yeah, and to to you and Sally too. It's and yeah. um, you know it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's lovely to be able to follow you guys on social media and know that you're doing well when you are, but, yeah. yeah. There are down times, there are up times, but it all goes well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, thanks for that. And uh, anything you want to plug while you're here, because you can plug it if you want. <laughs> no, look, at the moment, um, I said I'm, I'm sort of between uh, projects, and I'm hoping not, but maybe careers. So, uh, yeah. So Just it's a bit Google fa- Lee Battersby people, that. and you can find his stuff. Yeah, that, that might be the easiest job. Okay. Well, you take care, mate, and I will catch yeah, up with you later. Yeah, you too. And uh, yeah, this will be up probably in a few days. Yeah, no sweat, mate. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for the invite. Okay, take care, and thanks again, mate. So that was Lee and I shooting the shit and having a great time with it. As usual, here are the credits to honour the Patreon supporters of the podcast. I'll catch you guys very soon with another episode. See you then. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Drive-In Podcast. Done in a style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra, Kerry H, who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. 
We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake. And the science gets done, and you make a neat plan for the people who are still alive. I'm not even angry. I'm being so sincere right now. Even though you broke my heart and killed me, I'm torn into pieces and threw every piece into a fire. As they burned, it hurt because I was so happy for you. Now these points of data make a beautiful. Black Mesa. That was a joke. Huh?